This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, December 12th, 2014. Episode 4, The Violent Death of Bishop Walker. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and on this episode, we will continue and conclude the story of Bishop Walker of Durham, as told by Simeon of Durham. So, last episode, we were introduced to Walker, whose death was, at that time, forecast by a man who came back from death with a vision of the bishop's future murderer suffering in hell. Now, you may recall that Walker was praised for his personal virtues and learning, but criticized for letting the knights of his household run rather wild and bully the district. You combine this with some lingering resentments from the Anglo-Saxon aristocratic families who had been displaced by the continental Norman appointees like Walker, uh, who, in addition to his bishopric, had been put in charge of the earldom of Northumbria by William the Conqueror. Uh, And you can see how the bishop might develop some fierce enemies. Our chronicler, Simeon, uh, remains rather vague about the specific political dynamics of this conflict, only indirectly suggesting that one of the lead perpetrators, uh, the man allegedly destined for hell, was related to the previous Earl of Northumberland. But the murder is recorded elsewhere, too, um, including in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, where um, it is cast as a kind of native Northumbrian uprising against the Norman conquerors. Uh, And this is happening in the year 1080, so only 14 years after the defeat of King Harold at the Battle of Hastings. The Normans are still very much an occupying force, one with differing degrees of local collaboration, of course, depending on where you are in the country. Um, and they hadn't yet become the cultural hybrids that they later would. One thing that's interesting to note in today's selection is Simeon's own sympathies um, and where they fall, at, at least as much as we can discern them in his prose. And I rather think we should get straight to that prose. As I mentioned, we're continuing straight on from last episode's selection, uh, which was from Simeon of Durham's History of the Church of Durham, So you can get more basic background on that text uh, by listening to the introduction to episode 3. And as before, I'll be reading from David Rollison's 2000 edition and translation, which you might be able to find at your local university library, but probably not too many other places, I'm afraid. Uh, We're going to start just after where we left off last time, with Simeon resuming his own tale after the insertion of Aedwulf's vision of heaven and hell, and bringing us back to the consequences of the bishop letting his knights terrorize the locals. Let us now disclose in due order how the evil death of the bishop came about. 
On the day which had been agreed for the bishop's knights who had done the injuries and those who had suffered them to be reconciled in peace and concord, the bishop and his men came to the place called Gateshead, where all the elders who lived beyond the Tyne with the great multitude of the people brought together by the worst advice were also assembled. The bishop avoided the commotion by entering a small church in that place. There he summoned to him the chief men of the people and discussed with them the common benefit and mutual friendship of both parties. After this, the bishop remained in the church with a very few of his men, while those who had been called together went outside as if to hold discussions. And after a short time, a shout went up from the vociferous crowd, and suddenly men were being massacred on all sides without mercy, for some surrounded and killed the bishop's knights without warning, who were sitting or lying here and there, suspecting no mischief. Others climbed up the church and set fire to it, while others, drawing their swords or brandishing their spears, stood massed at the door, permitting no one to come out alive. For those who were inside, since they could not bear the force of the flames, humbly confessed their sins, received blessing, and went out to be cut down at once as soon as they crossed the threshold. Last of all remained the bishop, suffering in his heart worse pangs than death itself. It was intolerable for him that he had seen his men, as well as his priests and deacons, murdered before his eyes, and he knew that the hand of his enemies would not spare him. Surrounded by death in different shapes, he did not know which to choose. The fire was forcing him to cast himself onto the weapons of his enemies. The weapons were forcing him back to the fire. The longer death was delayed, the worse would be the torment. Anything that brought death quickly seemed also to promise relief for his anguish. So when he was able no longer to bear the heat of the raging flames, he commended his soul with prayers to God, and went to the door, making the sign of the cross with his fingers and covering his eyes and head with the pall he was wearing. Alas, alas, on the very threshold he was pierced through and through with spears, and many sword wounds were even inflicted on his dead body. So intense was the bestial cruelty of his murderers that they were not satisfied just to have killed him. This murder of the bishop, a crime abominable to everyone, was committed on 14 May, the Thursday before Rogation Tide, when he had been bishop for nine years and two months. When the brothers of the monastery of Jero heard of his murder, they boarded a boat and sailed to Gateshead. In deep mourning they took up the body of their father the bishop, almost stripped of clothing and hardly recognizable from the number of wounds, placed it on a boat, and conveyed it to their monastery. Thence it was taken to Durham for burial. The funeral rites fell short of the bishop's due, for his murderers were raging through the town. They'd come immediately after the abominable killing, aiming to capture the castle and kill all the bishop's surviving men. But the latter stoutly defended themselves, so that the insurgents lost some of their men and were exhausted by their fruitless assault. On the fourth day of the siege they went away and dispersed to various places. All whom the evil killing of the bishop had made detestable to God and to men were either overtaken by death in various forms or left their homes and their possessions and wandered as homeless fugitives and exiles. When news of what had been done spread far and wide, Bishop Odo of Bayou, who was then second only to the king, came to Durham with many of the leading men of the kingdom and a large force of armed men, and in avenging the death of the bishop, virtually laid the land waste. 
They ordered many of the wretched inhabitants who, relying on their innocence, had stayed at home to be beheaded as criminals or mutilated by the amputation of limbs. Several were falsely accused of crimes to make them redeem their lives and purchase their safety with money. Bishop Odo also took away certain ornaments from the church, including a pastoral staff of wondrous substance and workmanship, for it was made of sapphire. This was put in the castle under the guard of the soldiers and soon disappeared. Well, so long, Walker. Just a few observations about this story. Uh, the first is that question of sympathy. In the way that Simeon portrays Walker's final moments, I think he conjures up a lot of natural human sympathy for the bishop. By putting us inside the bishop's head while he wrestles with this horrible dilemma, whether to die by fire or by sword, he leaves us little choice but to imagine ourselves faced with that hopeless binary, um, and empathy is generated as a consequence. So there's not much equivocation about the awfulness of the bishop's murder, even if the bishop's moral status was somewhat complicated. Uh, as we heard last week, Simeon says of Walker, um, and this quote is slightly abridged, he was worthy of the love of all through the honesty of his life and the sobriety and gentleness of his ways. However, because he did not restrain his men from freely doing what they wished and indeed doing several things of a hostile nature, he offended the native inhabitants. The knights also behaved very arrogantly towards the people, robbing many with violence and killing some, even some of the older people. When the bishop disregarded their wrongdoing and did not constrain them with the censure of his episcopal authority, he was one day struck down along with them and died because of their sins, just as Eli once died for the guilt of his sons. And actually, even in this passage, Walker's moral character isn't challenged. His failure to constrain his knights is not itself cast as a sin. It's their sins that he dies for. Um, instead, he's guilty of just bad management. Uh, now, certainly it's possible that the light touch Simeon gives Walker is conditioned by the particularly awful way that the bishop dies, um, and it's also probably connected to Simeon's larger purpose in writing. Um, he's writing a history of Durham partly as a champion of its uh, ecclesiastical legacy, and so he has reasons to cast a, formal, uh, a former bishop of Durham in a good light. Interestingly, though, as much as Walker's murder is couched in the rhetoric of martyrdom, we don't ultimately get a Saint Walker. His battered body and his blood-soaked vestments aren't transformed into relics. There's no cult that develops. Uh, and indeed, once he's safely, if rather unceremoniously, buried, that's pretty much the end of his legacy, and Simeon's ready to move on to other things. Uh, and this does bring us to the portrayal of the other victims and of the killers. The bishop's men have not been presented positively, and Simeon's rhetoric does rather suggest that they 
They do earn their deaths through their sins. And yet, in this scene, they're jumped upon unawares and massacred. There's no honor or chivalry to this act, um, but a strangely anonymous mob violence prevails. Even though the story of Aidwolf's vision that we heard last time gives us the name of one of the killers, this character does not actually emerge from the crowd in this scene at all. There's, in fact, a kind of weird schizophrenia or contradiction in the depiction of the Northumbrian people. The bishop arrives at Gateshead to find, quote, a great multitude of the whole people brought together by the worst advice, and it's a vociferous crowd that falls upon his knights outside the church. You know, it's it's easy enough to picture the English villagers with torches and pitchforks attacking the Norman authorities who have taken over their local politics. And yet, Simeon goes on to say that the bishop's murder was a crime abominable to everyone, and that though the murderous insurgents do seem to run riot uh, through the town for a few days— they're soon defeated, and the murderers of the bishop, uh, who find either death or exile, are now marked as a distinct minority within the populace. And we have a final kind of strange uh, reintegration of the social order when another Norman rides up from the south to ostensibly bring justice, this being the notoriously ambitious and bellicose Odo of Bayou. Uh, and... Odo is a monster here. He's an affliction that lays waste to the land and steals the church's precious treasures. Uh, I have a few other Odo stories from other chronicles that we'll be hearing in the future, so just wait. Um, but having lamented the death of a Norman bishop and looked askance at the natives, our sympathies are once again spun around to raise an eyebrow at uh, Norman depredations and to feel sorry for the locals. Anyway, we end up with a very striking narrative that ends up being surprisingly non-propagandistic, or at least it's deeply conflicted propaganda that doesn't exactly know what faction to root for and where uh, ultimately to place the blame. No neat and tidy moral is attached here, um, and that's the kind of historical anecdote that I certainly enjoy the most. Uh, one final little bit of trivia. When I was searching for further information on Bishop Walker, uh, I came across a Google book result for Oliver Heslop's 1892 reference work, Northumbrian Words, which has an entry for the word read, R-E-D-E, which means counsel or advice. There's one famous etymological example of Reed, um, which is the name of the Anglo-Saxon king familiar to all players of Sid Meier's Civilization series, Ethelred the Unready, um, where unready is a translation of the Old English unrad, uh, which means without rad, um, which would be the same word uh, as read in Middle English. Um, in, so, in other words, without good counsel or advice, uh, which is ends up being a pun on his own name, Athelred, which means noble counsel. Uh, so he's unready in the sense that he has not received um, the right preparation 
from his advisors and counselors. Anyway, Reed appears in a proverbial expression, short read is good read. And concerning this proverb, Heslop says, quote, The proverb is specially associated with the death of Walker, the first bishop of Durham appointed by William the Conqueror. At Gateshead, the bishop had met the leaders of the people, and on retiring to the church, the cry was raised, Short read, good read, slay ye the bishop. The church was thereupon set on fire, and the bishop was slain. End quote. Uh, now, based on a little further searching, this proverb no longer seems to be in use. Uh, it seems to not have uh, lasted much beyond the early modern period. Um, but maybe it's worth reviving in an age uh, of unabating commentary. If nothing else, though, uh, I should probably abide by it now and wrap this up. So let's do our riddle. Last week's riddle, which I took from a facsimile edition of the De Mons Joyeuse, uh, a riddle book from 1511, was, What thing is it, the less it is, the more it is dread? The answer? What is it that you're more afraid of when there's not as much of it there? Why, it's a bridge, of course. And I can't help but picture the bridge of death from Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, whenever I think about this riddle. The bridge of death must answer me these questions three. Ere the other side he see. Ask me the questions, bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid. And let's get a new riddle. Here's one um, in honor of our winter weather. Uh, well, here in the northern hemisphere, anyway. What is it that freezeth never? What is it that freezeth never? I don't know that. <laughs> We'll be back in two weeks with the answer uh, and a new episode. Um, so that's going to be Friday, the 26th of December, right after the Christmas holiday. Uh, that episode is going to be an extra large, extra special episode with, I think, a really phenomenal eyewitness account um, of another terrible thing. Not quite as gruesome a thing as Walker's death, um, but really amazing in its own way. I look forward to sharing that with you um, in about two weeks. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast and check in at our website at MedievalDeathTrip.com where you can access all of our episodes so far and get references for the texts uh, that are presented in each one. Oh, and before I go, I'd like to thank a couple of people. Joe left a very encouraging comment on the website, and that really brightened my day, so thank you, Joe. And we got our first review in the U.S. iTunes store. Um, a great uh, little positive review from LBW2112. So thank you very much for that. These are the first bits of feedback that I've gotten on the podcast, uh, in fact. And they're greatly appreciated. I'd love to hear from more of you through Twitter or through the website or via reviews. And you can spread the word about the podcast to friends and colleagues. Um, I know this podcast probably doesn't have, you know, hugely broad mainstream appeal, uh, but I like to think that there is a particular set of people who might get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And if you're one of those people, then I'm sure you probably know a few others. 
Oh, and if you are a student of the Middle Ages and you catch me saying something contentious or wrong or based on outdated scholarship or ignorance of other sources or other contextual information, uh, I do welcome corrective feedback as well. Uh, I certainly think we could introduce a uh, core agenda feature uh, to the podcast to go over errors or debates. Um, So do leave those uh, constructive observations on the website or tweet them at me. Uh, But anyway, thanks for listening. I really, truly do appreciate it. And happy holidays. Happy holidays.